Thanks to Harry's for supporting Industry Focus. You can get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel. Just go over to harrys.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, May 12th, and we finally got our hands on Snap's first earnings release. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Skype by Evan New. Evan, how's it going? Pretty good. I'm having way too much fun watching Snap Tank today. <laughs> I have to admit. Well, you do have you do have a little bit of options action with Snap, right? Right. So I am short, uh, small short position with some puts. So you know, I, I am enjoying the the action today. Well, even without having any skin in the game, so to speak, I will say that this was the earnings report I was most looking forward to this quarter. Uh, you know, we got a look at Snap's prospectus, uh, you know, a couple months back, but. You talk about when a company goes public, and the idea that very often it's when it's in the company's best interest or you know current management's best interest to go public. The numbers look maybe as good as they're going to for a while until they figure out monetization. Uh, I certainly thought that that was the case with Snap. It seems like you probably did too. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, generally speaking, IPOs are. I consider IPOs like a marketing event because you know you, you go on this roadshow, you're drumming up interest. And you have to you have to have some numbers, of course, to back it up. But it's really about how you spin numbers and how you tell your story. And if you have a good a good roadshow, then you have a good IPO. You raise a bunch of money. But now we're at the first public earnings release, and I think that's really kind of the the wake up call for any company that goes public recently. And it's really just kind of the, the first big test of you know, okay, now that we're public, because obviously earnings releases are a regular quarterly thing, and you, now you get to follow the company on an ongoing basis. It's not just this big kind of you know marketing event more or less like the IPO was. Yeah, the honeymoon period certainly is over for Snap. Uh, following the release, shares were down 20%. And that's really because the numbers didn't look all that great. Uh, revenue came in at just under $150 million, which was up from $39 million a quarter ago, a year ago, in the previous quarter. Um, and the street was looking for somewhere in the neighborhood of the high 150 to $160 million range. Uh, net loss came in at $2.2 billion. Which was up from 100 million a year ago. A large chunk of that was from stock-based compensation. We're going to touch on that later. Um, but yeah, shares fell 20 percent. Uh, I, I think one of the big scary things, also uh, looking at the report, was what was going on with user numbers. Right. I mean, of course, you know, with any social media company, you know, user metrics are extremely important, and everyone's all too familiar with how Twitter did and you know, did not do well with putting up user numbers, and that's really why Twitter as a stock is lagged. And you know they haven't. They also haven't really been putting up strong ad numbers, uh, revenue numbers either. So that's kind of where Snap now finds itself is because we had already seen in, in the prospectus that uh, daily active user growth was kind of decelerating, uh, especially if you look at it on a sequential basis, which is what I like to do with social media companies. Um, but yeah, I mean they're up to like 166 million, and I mean that's a, it's better this quarter than probably the past couple of quarters, but it was also you know shy of what people expected. Yeah, you can break out what's going on with users a couple different ways. You said sequentially or year over year. Uh, quarter to quarter, the company did add more daily actives this quarter than they did the previous quarter. So, you know, some cheers there. Um, but if you look on the year over year growth rates, uh, they're decelerating. I mean, you go back a couple quarters and the company was posting growth rates of 65%, 62%, 48%, and now they're at 36% year over year. Uh, it seems like they're getting a little bit closer, a little bit closer, a little bit closer to the ceiling in terms of uh, you know what user growth and what that overall audience might look like, uh, and that's naturally going to scare investors quite a bit. Um, 
they've talked a little bit in the past about how you know they're not huge on overall user numbers. They're really big on engagement. Uh, they like to kind of highlight what was going on in terms of user spend uh, with time on the platform. And they highlighted that people are spending 30 days on average, uh, 30 minutes per day on average on the platform last quarter. And they said the metric was up. I don't really remember them giving a firm number in the past when we were looking at the perspectives. Evan, do you? I don't remember. I mean, they might have, but I don't. I can't recall off the top of my head. Yeah, because I was looking back and I saw a range of 25 to 30 minutes uh, when they, you know, released all their information for the IPO. Uh, so it's hard to know exactly how high that's up. You know, it's if management's saying it's trending up, that's nice. But it's not like it was a massive improvement based on at least what we know uh, going back to the prospectus. And on speaking on user numbers, I mean, they had Evan Spiegel had this really weird comment on the call about like, oh, our rivals are doing what we call growth hacking, which you know, they're, you know, when you send people notifications and basically just prod people into using the app and getting their friends to use the app, and he's he was kind of like saying this in, in like a bad way of like, oh, we're not going to resort to those types of methods to try and grow user numbers, but it's like, why is that a bad thing? I mean, the Everything these companies do, all of them, is, is meant to increase engagement on the platform. And why why is that like this bad thing when you know a company is experimenting on, in different ways to try to get their users engaged, get their users to grow their their own network of friends on the platform? Those to me are just kind of regular things that a company should be doing to increase engagement. Yet. You know, Spiegel's kind of like trying to downplay and say, "Oh, we don't, we're not, we're not going to do that." But I, it, it was just a really bizarre way to frame it. When you would think that a company like Snap, that is trying very hard to grow users, would consider experimenting with some of those types of things. But it, it was just a weird comment to make. And and also to put the platform under a microscope for a minute, I don't know if you use the messaging side of Snapchat at all, or if you are just more on the story side with your posts, but if you wind up actually sending each other messages, you know, to friends back and forth on the platform, you get a notification that your friend is typing the message. Like, are there any other platforms <laughs> where, where you get that notification? Like, that is absolutely a push to get people playing on the platform more and to give people yeah, a heads exactly. up. Yeah, exactly. So, I wasn't aware of that since I don't really use the platform in, in, you know, for those. So, that, that is kind of crazy because that sounds exactly like what he's talking about, which is just sending you little notifications and prodding you to K. Yeah, and stay I, in the app. Stay I, engaged. And I see that. And I'm like, I don't need that. Just tell me when I actually have the message. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a weird notification. Hey, someone's typing. I'm, of course, like a lot of times on messaging platforms, you see when people are typing, but a notification that someone's typing does seem kind of annoying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, something else I think to kind of keep an eye on with what's going on with user growth is all of it's coming from North America and Europe. And so you look at the company's rest of world segment. Those are the three ways that they break it out right now. And that's been relatively flat over the last three quarters. Uh, it's like 39 million, 39 million, 40 million. And I, you know, I think some of that is connectivity. Obviously, developing parts of the world don't necessarily have access to the same broadband cell service. Uh, and obviously, Snap is a very visual and data-heavy app. Um, but I think that's problematic long-term for the company. Yeah, I think that you know that, that is a conscious decision on their part because they're only focused on the U.S. and Europe. And I mean, of course, there's been all those headlines you've probably seen about, you know, Spiegel called India and Spain poor countries and didn't want to expand into them. And, you know, of course, that didn't go over very well with users in those countries. But, you know, the underlying business rationale for why you might not want to expand into those countries is that, you know, 
ad monetization in those countries is very low. It is, it is, you know, financially just very hard to make money there. But of course, like saying, oh, the country's poor is just a horrible way to go about it. But you know, if you look at their business, you know, they're, they they don't really scale well to emerging markets because of the, their use of third-party cloud infrastructure, which I, I know we'll, we'll touch on in a minute. But you know, their costs are very high, and the monetization is very low. So if they were to expand into emerging markets, it just accelerates their losses because they get they get pinched by really poor ad rates and then really high costs. So financially, they don't really have much of a choice because they would just they would just bleed out a ton of money if they tried. Yeah, I guess I would argue that they're still in the phase of business where it's okay to be creating losses because if you're building the daily active user base, people are going to ignore that for a long time. And you know, if you can get into some of these emerging markets and really be rooted in there, then you're putting yourself in a better long-term position whereas, you know, right now Facebook's eating their lunch in a lot of those developing markets and they're just dropping a lot of features that Snap has in its app that they really developed and popularized. And so I think by the time Snap gets to some of those markets, people are going to be like, "Yeah, I can already do this on Messenger or Instagram." You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, oh yeah, I definitely think it's a short-sighted thing to to basically ignore these emerging markets. <laughs> but but you also think that the company's uh, hosting strategy is kind of short-sighted as well, right? I mean, like this is this is something that a lot of companies really haven't done. Um, rather than investing in their own infrastructure, uh, you know, whether it's building out their own data centers or doing like kind of co-located facilities for their servers. Um, Snap's relying entirely on third-party cloud infrastructure providers, and and that's kind of new. I know you've been a skeptic of that in the past. Yeah, it's it's a very unique strategy, and I think, I mean, so if you look at it from Snap's perspective, the benefits that they're saying that of why they do it this way is, I think one is a um, reliability and resilience because AWS and Google Cloud are extremely powerful, and that way they can ensure the service is up and running. If you remember Twitter in the early days. Had ton, had outages all the time because they had so much trouble scaling because people were coming to the service so quickly. It's overwhelming Twitter's own servers and their their in-house infrastructure that you know just caused constant outages in the early years. So by by relying on AWS and Google Cloud, Snap can avoid that because those clouds are so strong that it's really unlikely that you're going to get hit with an outage. Uh, of course, it can happen, but it's just much less risk of that happening. But the other piece of it is. You know they're trying to to save all this money on capital expenditures. I mean, capital expenditures last quarter were very low, which they're always low for Snap because that's just how they approach their cloud stuff. It was like 18 million or something. And on the call, they mentioned like, oh, we estimate that using a capital-wide approach has saved us billions of dollars in capital expenditures, which is true. But if you turn around, they've also committed to spending three billion dollars at AWS and Google Cloud over the next five years combined. So. You're not really saving that money. <laughs> I mean, you're still spending that money. You just instead of spending that money on capital expenditures, and then you know having an asset on your balance sheet where you depreciate over time, and actually is your infrastructure. Now you're relying completely on these third parties, and those are variable costs. And I mean, that's going to be a really big challenge for scaling because those costs are going to scale too. And they they did renegotiate their contract pricing during the quarter with both AWS and Google Cloud. So they did say that lower contract pricing did help their cost structure a little bit. And I mean if you're if you're looking at it from Amazon or Google's perspective, Snap is a huge customer in this space, right? I mean they're probably one of the biggest customers out there you know, with these types of spending commitments. And you know, these are the two biggest cloud cloud providers. So of course they're gonna be bidding pretty aggressively 
and competing for this contract, and I'm sure Snap's pitting them against each other and really leveraging that and negotiating. So yeah, they are they are getting some better pricing now, but it just seems not like a good. It just doesn't seem like a good long-term strategy because if you really want to have good long-term growth, you just build the infrastructure yourself, eat the costs up front, but then you can scale so much better. Yeah, and you talked about you know it being variable and, and being somewhat subject to pricing negotiations. So this most recent quarter, hosting costs ate up seventy percent of revenue, and that's actually down uh, from you know the last couple quarters where it was up near eighty percent a few quarters ago. Uh, a year ago, it was like one hundred and sixty percent. So hosting costs exceeded revenue. Yeah, <laughs> like last year, like a year ago. I'm not sure how much further that's going to fall. You know, we might continue to see it uh, move down into the low, uh, the you know high sixties or something like that. But I don't know how much lower that floor is going to be. But it really just kind of speaks to how their cost structure is very different than a Facebook, you know, a company that has decided to build out. I think they have what seven data centers at this point. Um, nine, I think. Nine. Wow. Yeah. So um, you know, rather than have that fixed cost, like you said, um, as they have more people using the platform and more people using the platform longer. Uh, the cost for them doing that is going to continue to go up, which is something that uh, you know could be good, could be bad. It kind of depends on your your outlook and, and what you value for the business. I mean, it gives them more flexibility if things start heading down. Like if people stop using the platform and users start you know abandoning Snapchat, then then it, it is better that in that situation because then you're not stuck with this all this infrastructure you've built, and then your costs will scale down. But obviously, Snap is not hoping to. You know, they're hoping things go up, and in which case, yeah, it's just it's just really hard to you know because they're just trying to they're getting squeezed by these costs, and I, I just think it's really short sighted. And but I mean, to be fair, they have hinted that they might pursue their own infrastructure at some point in the future, um, but they, they're very vague about it in the prospectus. They weren't really didn't specify timing, and of course, I mean, they they do have these spending commitments for five plus for five years, so it doesn't seem like it. If they do it on their own, it doesn't seem like it would be within the next five years, at least. Yeah, and vague has been, I think, a consistent theme in a lot of the communication we've gotten from Snap's management. We're going to touch on some more of the vagaries that we found in the report in the second half of the show. Before we get over there, though, I just want to thank Harry's for supporting Industry Focus. Listeners who have seen video segments of the podcast that we post on Fool.com know I'm usually sporting a beard, but last time Harry sponsored the show, I decided to try out their razors and see what I might be missing. To make things a little bit more interesting, I told coworkers if they raised a certain amount of money, I'd shave my beard into whatever configuration they wanted and keep it for a couple days. Wound up raising a couple hundred bucks for Pencils of Promise, which is a foundation the Fool works with quite often, and I wound up with a monkey tail on my face. If you want to see it, we'll tweet out the photo on the industry-focused Twitter account. Point is, it's the first time I've used a razor in a long time. I'm usually a trimmer guy, and it was absolutely painless. No nicks, no cuts. It was great. Harry Stuff's excellent. Uh, they have a great feel of the razor, and the shaving cream smells absolutely fantastic. Harry's is so confident that you will love their blades, they're giving you a free trial set. It's a $13 value. All you need to do is cover the $3 in shipping. That free trial set includes a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. You can get your free trial set and start shaving with Harry's. All you need to do is go to harrys.com slash fool. That's harrys.com slash fool. So, Evan, I know that we had a couple little other interesting tidbits we wanted to touch. Uh, why don't we start with spectacles? Because 
I know I know leading up to uh, their IPO one of the biggest things I was wondering was like you know what is this doing for their business you know this is hardware we think of them as a software and platform play are they getting anything meaningful there uh, what's your take on what's going on yeah it's, and it's weird because spectacles has seems to be kind of the basis for why they rebranded themselves a camera company because now they make a camera product but that's just, I mean we've talked about this before but it's a weird it's just a strange identity to, to try to carve out for yourself. But they, they have started disclosing a little bit more detail about Spectacles. So <clears throat> they said last quarter, Spectacles revenue was about $8 million. Um, but at the same time, if you look at, they've also break, broken down their costs in more detail, which is very useful for investors. And we already talked about the hosting cost bit, which they broke out. But you know, if you look at this other category, uh, other cost of revenue was about 20 million and i'm pretty sure that is predominantly related to spectacles if you look at the language in their in their filings and i mean if you think about it, that's operationally the, the other, only other real part it could be i mean um so if if the revenue is 8 million and the cost was 20 million obviously they're probably losing about 12 million dollars in the quarter on spectacles on, on the hardware side and that includes like building these machines and having inventory costs and you know just kind of all the physical logistics associated with physically selling a product, which this is the first time they've ever done that. Um, so they're probably losing a bunch of money up front. Um, hardware is, of course, just naturally very hard um, to do you know, as a sustainable business in the long term where you can have product cycles and get people to constantly buy your product. But in terms of engagement, I think it's very interesting because it doesn't seem like Spectacles do a whole lot in terms of engagement either. So on the call, Spiegel said that um, there have been 5 million snaps created via Spectacles to date. Spectacles launched in November. Okay, And then at the same time, they said in the first quarter that there were 3 billion snaps per day created. So throughout the qu- whole quarter, we're talking about 270 billion snaps that are created on the platform. And less than 5 million of that comes from Spectacles. And you know, if you do the math, that's 0.002% of snaps created. Less than that because you know that's just in the quarter. So it's, it just begs the question of well, why are you doing this? No one's using these things in a kind of meaningful way. I mean, it's literally a rounding error at this point, like point zero zero two percent. Like, who cares about that? <laughs> yeah, that, and, that's basically a footnote, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> you're losing money. You're putting all this effort into it. You're probably hiring a bunch of people to, to work on these things and, and whatever comes next in the product pipeline on hardware. And they're not doing anything in terms of engagement. Users aren't really using them. And now you're jumping into this this space of trying to develop camera hardware, which you know, if you the, the other 99.998% of usage is coming from smartphone cameras, which smartphone cameras are amazing these days. So, I mean, you're, there's no way the Snap is going to come out with a better camera than like Apple or Samsung. So why, it, it, it makes no sense to me. I mean, they're losing money, they're not helping engagement, and there's no way they can actually compete. Yeah, when, <laughs> when I first saw them doing this, I thought they were really smart in creating a lot of buzz every time that they launched a new location. You know, they would, they would drop these vending machines that had a limited number of spectacles in the middle of these kind of like remote spots or in city areas, and they wound up getting a ton of press for it. I thought it was a really brilliant marketing play. And it built a lot of awareness for the company, but there's a big difference between building buzz and being a viable product segment, right? And so, uh, I don't think that investors should spec- expect a whole lot to be coming from the spectacles or a hardware segment uh, anytime soon, if ever, uh, just because like you ran through the economics right there, and they're really not that great for the business. Yeah, and I mean, I definitely agree that 
the the launch was a very successful marketing campaign because everyone was buzzing about it. It was you know it, it, there was a lot of hype around the, these things. Uh, so I definitely agree that the the event was successful as a marketing event. But yeah, now that we're starting to get some like numbers out of out of the company in terms of you know usage and you know financials, it just it does not seem worth it to yeah. me. One of the other things that kind of popped out to me looking at the report was I mentioned earlier net loss came in at two point two billion dollars. Now non GAAP EBITDA, that's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, which backs out stock based compensation, came in at a just under two hundred million dollar loss. And I think it's worth emphasizing that EBITDA backs out stock-based compensation because stock-based compensation was huge for Snap in this most recent quarter. Yeah, I mean, so out of the total net loss of 2.2 billion, two billion of that was stock-based compensation, which is not uncommon to ha- for companies that go public because what what usually happens is a lot of the private stock that's been given out when the company's private. There's these performance conditions that only get met when, you know, the company goes public. So what that does is that triggers a ton of vesting and you know, huge expenses are now recognized. Um, so that's what happened here. But I think what in this case it's it's just a huge number. I mean, for for context, when Facebook went public, their first public earnings release, they reported like 1.3 billion in um, stock-based compensation. So that's less than what Snapchat supported. And when Facebook went public, it was a massive company already, and they IPO'd at like over a hundred billion dollar market cap, and they had like seven or eight hundred million monthly active users. You know, I mean, they're much bigger at that time, and their stock based comp was less than what Snapchat put up. I think one thing that's worth emphasizing with this argument, though, is one grant in particular ate up one third of that total two billion dollars. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so that's another red flag to me is that, that as soon as um, Snap and Public, Evan Spiegel got a, a giant bonus for taking the company public, which, I mean, those bonuses aren't unheard of in themselves. But again, his what's alarming is just the magnitude of it. So, you know, he, he has his CEO, CEO grant that says he gets an extra 3% of shares outstanding once they go public. And you know, so it turns out to be about six hundred and twenty-five, six hundred and forty million dollars that Snap recognized all upfront, right, like immediately after the IPO, and that's just for him, which, as you mentioned, is about a third of the whole two billion total for the quarter. But what is so weird about it is that this award vested immediately, but they don't pay it out. They they pay it out to him in quarterly installments over three years, so. It, it's it's considered an unsecured liability. Like they're like you're an unsecured creditor with this, and but the, but then why did it vest? So because it all vested all up front, they ate this giant cost up front, and because it vested up front, there's no service requirement. So you know obviously the point of having vesting time frames is to retain employees and make sure they stick around, but they just gave him all this up front. And he has no he, – he can leave the company right now if he wanted to. And he would retain and all those shares, right? he still gets that. And he still gets to keep them. And then they just pay him out over three years. But they're vested. They're his. Yeah. And, and Evan, I know you, yeah. you wrote a WholeFool.com piece about this. Listeners, if you want to see the numbers kind of broken down on paper rather than having them told to you, uh, just email into the show, industryfocus at fool.com. Happy to send it along. But, but I think the, the thing that you need to remember with this is the type of grant that we see here – one, I mean, it's not particularly great for the business because you're you're recognizing a ton of stock-based compensation at once. 
And it's also not particularly great if you're a long-term investor that wants the CEO to stick around and have you know skin in the game and a vested interest in the long-term outcome of the business. Like you said, he can walk whenever now. Yeah, it's just a weird. I don't understand why they wouldn't just have it invest over time, and then not not only does that spread out the cost of the grant, but it also has retention effects. And I mean, I mean, not that I'm a huge fan of Evan Spiegel as a product visionary per se to begin with, but kind of on principle from like a governance perspective, it just doesn't seem right. And you know, combined with all the other kind of governance red flags that we've seen with this company, like no voting and things like that, like it just doesn't seem like Snap cares about its investors like they just it just seemed like they just want to enrich themselves particularly Evan Spiegel. Yeah, and and frankly a lot of the comments from management seem to strike that tone with me too. Uh, a couple in particular that really stood out, uh, one from Spiegel, were kind of famous for not giving guidance on product pipeline and and, and like we talk about kind of transparency and and kind of having shareholders' best interest in mind. I mean, there wasn't any guidance anywhere, right? We didn't really get much in terms of product. We didn't really get much in terms of financial guidance. Like, I understand nope. that it's a high-growth business, and you know, it's obviously going to take some time to settle out. I think we were bound to have a big reaction either way to the results, just because no one knew what to expect, really. But it feels a lot like this is a company being run by Spiegel and Murphy that have all the controls and don't have to answer to anybody, and that's because they don't. Like that, that's exactly what this is. You know, they the way it's all set up, um, they can kind of do whatever they want. Yeah, I mean, just the vote, whole voting structure is very literally saying, "We want your money, but not your opinion," <laughs> <laughs> and that's never good. Like in any context, in and, and yeah, I mean, just, just to kind of touch on what you're saying, his comments on the call, like. It had this air of arrogance of like, oh, we don't care. And of course, like they don't want to give any hints about what they have in the product because they don't want Facebook to copy them, of course, uh, until they release it and then Facebook will just copy them later. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're just, they, they came out very smug and arrogant despite the fact that investors are clearly not impressed. And I think that heading into the results, the, the chances of the stock going jumping were just very remote be, because of the valuation. I mean, there's so much priced into valuation uh, at the IPO, which we've talked about on previous shows. And then, you know, the, so the bar is very high already. And any any small miss is going to, you're going to get punished for. And then they missed quite a bit on several fronts. So it's not really surprising to me that, that the stock dropped as much as it did, because it's, it's, just, it's just no way it could have li- really lived up to the valuation. And in fairness, this is something that we've seen time and time again, right? I mean, this happened with Twitter. This happened with Facebook. Uh, you know, a lot of expectations coming out of the IPO, and then kind of the next morning wake up where you're like, oh, you know, we need to run a real business here that's making money and put up really solid numbers quarter to quarter. Um, and I think that this is part of the reason why, you know, even if you do think Snap is a long-term stock that you want to own, you want to buy, um, or really for that matter, any recently public stock, it might make sense to wait a few quarters and see how the numbers shake out first. Because management knows a lot more than you do when it's time to go public in terms of the trajectory of the business, and also, you know, when you're kind of pre-monetization the way that Snap was, you're not exactly sure what those revenue streams are going to look like, or, or what the final business is really going to become. Exactly, and that's kind of just supports my theory that they're just trying to cash out. Because I mean, some people argue that they they kind of went public prematurely relative to you know usually you want to have a cup have some 
more solid financial numbers before you go public. And they were just now starting to grow the ad business, so, you know, which is why the, the growth rate in the first quarter was so huge is because they're coming off such a tiny base. So, I mean, there was kind of some, some concern, like, why are they going public so now versus waiting until they have some kind of some better results in their in their track record which of course it makes it better to justify to investors but i mean i think the whole thing is they just want to cash out as soon as they could and and you know get rich <laughs> yeah i mean in some way i can't blame them right <laughs> um evan anything else you want to hit no, just uh, hope they keep trending lower. <laughs> <laughs> um, listeners, if you want to check out any more of our coverage, you know Evan's done an awesome job uh, looking at some of the stuff from earnings for Snap. So head over to fool.com. Like I said, if you if you want any stuff sent over to you, just write into the show at industryfocus at fool.com. You can always tweet us at MF Industry Focus as well. If you're looking for some more of our stuff, you can subscribe on iTunes or check out the Fool's family of shows at fool.com slash podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show. The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Shout out to Austin Morgan for mixing the show. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool on.